chapter 2, and uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I make apology in one sense, but then in another I don't. It's been such a wonderful opportunity to study in depth chapter 1, and there's so much there, and I really believe God is teaching us all. So we're, we're going to open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 2, as uh, we look again, kind of reviewing the creation account in chapter 2. There are two different accounts, but a little more detail in chapter 2. But uh, I, I have to just say, as we get to this uh, portion of the scriptures, these first three chapters of Genesis are foundational for you as a believer. And, and that's probably why I've spent so much time just really studying and looking at these in depth, because uh, without a really good foundation of Genesis, you really can't even understand salvation. You, you have to understand that God is the creator and maker of all things. Before salvation really makes a lot of sense. That You have to understand God's a creator, and he's going to hold you accountable because he made it all. And he's provided a plan from the beginning of time, before the earth was created, this wonderful plan of redemption, which we'll experience this week again in depth as we teach on that. But, but it's so important for us to understand exactly what the Bible teaches about the creation of our world as it's recorded here in Genesis, that God created all the heavens and the earth, and he made them all mature. Everything is mature that he's made. We've noticed that. I've detailed that as we've gone through chapter 1. And with the exception of sin, the world and the universe are pretty much the same. Now, sin has tarnished the world. Not as many plants and animals. They've died. Uh, maybe color is diminished because of sin. I know our lives are diminished because of sin. But, but really, the world that we're looking at now and, and living in is really a result of God's wonderful creation, divine fiat, as he spoke and created things just from speaking, fantastic truth that we've learned. Now, I want you to back up to verse 31 of chapter 1, so I guess we're not getting out of chapter 1 tonight. Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. There it is. I believe, and I've taught over and over, I, I believe the Bible teaches, and I believe what the Bible teaches, that God made everything that exists, everything that you see and experience in the physical world, he made it in six solar days, six 24-hour periods, morning and evening. That's what the Bible declares. So I don't believe in evolution. I don't believe that living things have evolved by random chance over billions of years. I don't, think, I don't believe that one-cell organisms have, have uh, evolved into higher forms of life over those billions of years, nor do I believe in theistic evolution, which is a theory held by Christians that God kind of started this process of creation, and then he took his hands off, and he's been on vacation for billions of years, and it's just kind of by chance happening. It's just happening. Theistic evolutionists believe that, that it just kind of happens when God started the process and took his hands off, and again, over billions and billions of years, but that is not what the Bible teaches. And so I'm not trying to pick a fight with anybody, I'm just trying to teach you what I believe the scriptures teach clearly, and I make no exception or, or uh, apology for that. Everything in our known universe, 
was created by God just as it was written here in the first inspired book of, of the Bible, Genesis. And God gave us this historical record so that we'd understand where we came from. People are always asking, what, where do we come from? What's the meaning of life? Well, you know what? The answer is here. Let's read it. Let's start here. Because if we start here, as we go through the Bible, everything makes sense. Everything will come to conclusions based on, I believe, the Genesis record or this account. So this is foundational to all theology and history. Genesis, this book. And I believe by accepting this account verbally, plenarily, every word, just the way it's written, literally, I believe that as we accept this account, it's so critical for the rest of our, our understanding of Scripture. Because again, if you don't take Genesis 1 literally as written, how can you take John 3.16 literally? I mean, it's a, it's a simple question, isn't it? Do you believe that you're saved? Do you believe that God said, John 3.16, for God's love, do you believe God loved the world? Well, if you believe John 3.16, then, and you take it literally, you, you ha it starts in Genesis. That's my point. It's so, so important for you to understand that. You can, you can question all of Scripture if you want to, and, and people that do that just do not believe in the Genesis account. And if you question that, then you're going to question every other part of Scripture, and it's a very dangerous place. Let me just warn anyone that's thinking that. You're putting yourself as a judge over the Scriptures. You're not just receiving what God's written. You're saying, you know, I'm not sure about that. I think there's some science that's modern that, that disproves the Bible. And you're putting science over God's inspired word. That's a very dangerous thing. It's a serious crime. Listen, it's a crime against the Scriptures. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not threatening anyone, but it's a, I believe it's a serious crime against what the scriptural record teaches. So again, I come to the scripture, I believe what it says, that's what I teach, and my point is that the believer who accepts the gospel as written must accept the creation account as written because the issue of origins is critical to understanding God's purpose and place for man. He created the world and throughout the rest of the scripture, he unfolds his plan of redemption. So we come to chapter 2 tonight, and here's my first point as we get into chapter 2, verse 1. Heaven and earth are finished. They're finished. And look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, did you notice the repetition there? Do you, do you get the idea that God's really trying to communicate something here? He says two different things over and over three times. He, he does it again and again. He talks about the seventh day three times here. And so the question is, so what's so special about the seventh day? Well, again, verse 1, you have the word finished. Verse 2, on the seventh day was ended or rested. And then verse 3, blessed on the seventh day. The reason that day 7 is unique is that God had finished everything on day 6. And on day 7, he rested. And, and when you really think about, think about him resting on the seventh day, there's no mention of 
evening and morning the seventh day. There is on every other day, but not on this day. Why? Why isn't there? Because God's still resting from his creation. In other words, he's done. There isn't a process of more creation. It was all created on six literal days. I believe the planet's six to 7,000 possibly years old. Again, I get that from the scriptures, and I proved that earlier with the scriptures. And as we go through that, again, you might go, oh, ah, oh, that, that doesn't jive with, with current thought or, or modern science or whatever. And to me, it's like, I, I'm just, this is what the Bible teaches. And just as I believe John 3.16, I believe Genesis 1. And it's so good. It's so wonderful. The word rested there in verse 2 is the word Shabbat. Shabbat in the Hebrew. Now, this word rested, when we come to the word rested, it's like at the end of Wednesday, you come to church and you're really tired, as Pastor Lee teaches, and you want to rest and you bobble around. <laughs> Some of you, you know, oh, you might zone. That's not what this word rested or Shabbat means. We, we have this connotation that God worked and he worked and he worked really hard for six days and then he just kicked back in his chair, you know, and rested. That's not what this means. That's not what the word Shabbat means there. At verse 2, basically what he's identifying here is that he finished the work. The word rested in the Hebrew does not mean tired or weariness. Doesn't mean that. Does it? it means it to us in English, but not in the Hebrew. God wasn't worn out, again, after a long work week. He doesn't get tired. God doesn't run out of energy. He is energy. He's, he's perfect in all his ways. He, he never gets tired. There are a lot of scriptures that prove that. One of those is Psalm 12, notice me, or 121. Psalm 121, verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel, he, he never does what? Look what he doesn't do. He never sleeps. Why? Because he doesn't expend energy. God doesn't expend energy. He just doesn't. He's God. And he spoke everything into existence. So on the seventh day, there's something going on. I'm going to reveal it to you, but there's something going on other than God being tired. Again, Shabbat is the word, and it means to cease or cessation uh, in this case. It literally means he didn't do any more work. So he rested from doing work. In other words, he didn't do any more creation. And it means, uh, and all it means here is that because God had completed the work in six days, there was nothing left. It was all done. So he just kind of sat back and he began to admire at what he had done. That's what it means. He, he was done. He was complete. It was complete. It was all that he wanted it to be. Nothing was going to grow or evolve or mutate or change. It was all mature and it was all complete, just as the scripture says. There was nothing more for him to do. So he worked those six days and the seventh day he ceased from work. Now, Exodus 31, this is interesting, says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he, that's Shabbat, and was refreshed. Now, again, you look at that verse and you go, Well, there it is, Pastor. He, had, he was refreshed. He must have been busy or tired, so he'd be refreshed. But that word refreshed in the English, again, when we read our English Bibles, we get these words, and that's why sometimes it's confusing. That's what I love about doing Bible study because I'm able to look into these words a little bit more. But that word does not mean that God whew, had to catch his breath. It's nafesh. Nafesh is the Hebrew word. And it carries this idea that God is satisfied, that God is delighted. Six days he worked and then he sat back and 
Ah, he begins to admire everything that he's created. He begins to delight in those things. That's what that word means. So God's response to his creative work was, and go go back to Genesis 1.31. Look at, I showed it to you at the beginning, but look at it. It says, then God saw everything. So he's looking at it. Everything that he made, and indeed it was, look at the the word there, very good. He was delighted. He was refreshed. He was nafash. He he loved what he saw, and he, he loved everything that was there. So he takes this Shabbat or this this rest, this cessation of of work. And again, I believe that what this scripture is indicating for us as we're reading this account is that God was satisfied. I've been to the Sistine Chapel in Rome. I was young when I went there. I've been to Israel, and some of you have too. And when you see these, some of these Roman sculptures or on the Sistine Chapel, and you see what Michelangelo did, I can just imagine him finishing after several years. I think it was seven years he painted that on his back, laying on his back. He was painting the Sistine Chapel. I might be wrong in the years, but it took him years. And, he's painting, and when he was done, it's like he gets off the ladder and he looks at the roof and he goes, ah. It's exactly what I wanted it to be. It's a pretty interesting painting, by the way, when you go there and see it, very descriptive of what was going on, the, the uh, different leaders in the Catholic Church that were trying to rush him. Get done. Paint that thing. I wish you'd paint faster. He actually painted their faces, these, these men that were hurrying him, in the pit of hell on the one end of the <laughs> Sistine It's very interesting. when you, you can actually go and Google and read that, but I saw that when the guys told me I was cracking me up, Michelangelo's painting on his back. But the idea here is God is stepping back like an artist, looking at the masterpiece and saying, ah, oh, finished. Like a uh, someone that works with, with marble and they chisel out a bust of someone and it, it comes out like a masterpiece, perfectly sculpted, the features, the nose and ears aren't too big, you know, it's just perfectly sized. Um, uh, an artisan can do those things and they stand back and they look at that. Now think about God. He's just finished creation and this is before the fall. And he looks, he stands back and he looks at pristine blue sky. He looks at the white sandy beaches. He looks at the, everything that he made was perfect and translucent and gorgeous and there's no sin and smog and there's no death and there's nothing, nothing to mar it. And he sits back and he looks at the brilliantly colored flowers and the tall redwoods and wow, it's just amazing. I love going to the redwoods here in California. We only have them here. You go look at one of those redwood trees, it takes 20 of us to put our hands around some of the bases of those things, and they tower hundreds of feet in the air, and they're just magnificent. God is looking at everything he made, and he's refreshed. He, he's, he's looking at it. Oh, he's, it's very good. It's exactly what he, he intended it to be. Again, you think about God walking through the garden in its perfect condition. No weeds, everything growing, just as he wanted it to. Uh, that's, that's the picture that we, we get here. God's looking at it. It's finished, and he's excited about it. Now, verse 3, God blesses the second day. So we move into the second day here in verse, or seventh day, pardon me, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified the seventh day, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created. 
He Shabbat. He, he ceased from his work and all the creation. Now, again, the seventh day is mentioned three times. And the word blessed here, God blessed the seventh day, is Barak. And it means to salute or to praise. In other words, God in blessing the seventh day is saluting or praising that day. He's setting that day aside for, to salute, to memorialize that day. That day is memorialized. It's different than all the first six days. It's different. He memorializes that day. It's set aside. He ceased from his work, and he sanctified. He made it special. That's the seventh day. Now, the blessing, again, of the seventh day, I believe God's giving us a pattern for our lives. Think about that. That God initiated this pattern for our lives. It's a beautiful thing when you think of a seven-day work uh, week or a seven-day week. It's, it's really permanently ingrained in our psyche. Everything that we do revolves around a seven-day week. And think about seven days. Why seven? Why not 13? Why not five? I, I mean, think about seven. It just doesn't really make any sense. We don't think of days in terms of these other numbers. But I believe that we are on this seven-day cycle because God is on a seven-day what? Cycle. Because God created six days, and the seventh day he hallowed or sanctified or blessed or memorialized the day. And so we're on this same cycle. Now, again, there's no scientific reason. There's no mathematical reason for weeks in the calendar. There's none at all. Nobody, nobody divides 365 days into sevens. You cannot do it. It's impossible to do mathematically. And when you look at your calendar, you look at your calendar, it's really interesting. Every month has a different number of, well, many months have different numbers of days. They're not all the same, right? I mean, weeks, what do, what do weeks have to do with anything? Man didn't come up with this. That's the point. God came up with weeks, and he did it to regulate our lives. I mean, don't you love the fact that, you know, next week you have new plans, Something new is going to happen in two weeks from now. And we measure our lives in terms of weeks. And it's really interesting. Again, you can't divide 365 by 7. And four weeks don't always make a month because some weeks have five. It's like weird, isn't it? I mean, I thought about that today. And there's only one, there's only, uh, one um, reason that we would have seven days in a week, and it's because God established order. God is a God of order, and so he established it. And so it's in us. It's, we're made in his image, so it's, we're all about that week thing. You know, everybody's working for... So you, you understand that. I mean, we all do that. It's kind of our, our place. So I believe that God intended to remind us that he did his creative work in six days in the seventh day, he rested. Now, when I was growing up, Saturdays were kind of an interesting day. It was they to go out and play in the yard. My mom would take us. We used to go over to the right before, right near Emmanuel Baptist Church. There was a, a, a mini golf course. Does anybody remember that on a baseline? Okay, a couple of you do. And we'd go out there and we'd play mini golf. And then there was the little stream. And actually, water ran through the, the North Fork of the mighty Santa Ana River. 
There was actually water there, and we would play in the water. We'd goof around and splash and chase lizards. My mom would take us out. I don't know if you did that when you were young. Saturday, it was kind of the day to, to get out in nature and kind of enjoy it. And then Sunday, many of you probably went to church. Some of you made, had to dress up with ties on. I didn't really do that because I, I wasn't raised in church. I started going to church when I was 13. That's when I started wearing tie. I actually had keep telling people this. Picture me. 13 years old with a leisure suit on and platform shoes to boot. I mean, come on. I, I was, you know, it was Saturday night fever at church where I was going. <laughs> but <laughs> Saturday, Saturday is the day that really was set apart so that we remember, memorialize that in our pattern, in our weekly pattern, that there's something special, that, that God's created this pattern that we live by. And there's one more thought here. Remember how God ended each day of creation in Genesis 1. Evening and morning were the day. That's how each day ends. But the seventh day doesn't even have that phrase. Because I believe that God isn't confined to any literal day. And and so we're still in this place where God's created and he's delighting in his creation. It's very interesting when you think about it. That was God's purpose. Now, again, we're going to get to Genesis 3 and everything's going to change. That's why it's important for us to understand 1, 2, and the first portion of 1 and 2, so that when we get to Genesis chapter 3 and sin, we'll understand it all. But God's rest for us isn't confined in that one moment. He wants us to memorialize it. He blessed it. He wants us to understand it. This is really interesting. Hebrews 4, 9, it's this next scripture I want to show you. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And so God wants us to look in terms of week. We need a rest. People need to rest. And and when you work seven days, and I do that every once in a while, it, it wears on you, doesn't it? And so everybody needs a rest. John Montgomery Boyce said this. Notice this quote here. God, having completed his work of creation, rests, as if to say, this is the destiny of those who are my people, to rest as I rest, to rest in me. I really love his quote there. Now, a real quick look before we move on, on the Sabbath day, because I know that you're all thinking this right now. Okay, Pastor Lee, you're setting us up for the Sabbath day, but but we don't worship on the Sabbath day. What day is the Sabbath? Saturday. What day to... Uh, Seventh-day Adventists worship Saturday. Um, what day to, there's some Baptist groups that worship on the Sabbath, and they would come to this portion of Scripture and say, see, 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 this is why we do it. And, and so I want to take a moment just to address that. I think it's important for us to, to see it, because I knew someone was going to come and ask me that question. There is nothing, number one, there is nothing In the text that we just read, Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, there's nothing said about man resting. Who is resting in Genesis 1 and 2? God is. It's not man. So to imply that man is going to rest is wrong here in this text. Man isn't mentioned here in connection with the seventh day. Not until Mosaic Law in Exodus chapter 20. It's in the Ten Commandments. Let me show you. And this is hundreds of years before, by the way. Exodus 20, verse 8, you know this. Remember the Sabbath day? Keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Now, because of this fourth commandment, the Jews, the Jews had turned the Sabbath into an unbearable burden. They came up with all these laws. You can read them in the Mishnah, but there were more than that. All these different laws of how far you could go. They had, you know, you could go as far as your neighbor's house, but what if your neighbor lived far away from you? Then you could only walk through the, past the field. And, and remember, Jesus it talks about Jesus going from the temple to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was a Sabbath day's journey. Some rabbis thought you could go at least that far, you know, to rest, go out to the park, you know, the Gethsemane, the Olive Hill was, was a place where they would go and visit and park. Uh, so, very interesting, many, many different laws that the Jews had made. The Sabbath day, they turned it into this burden, and they added their man-made interpretations to Exodus 20 uh, in the fourth commandment. Uh, very interesting. I, I read a bunch of those ritualistic laws by the different rabbis, and everyone had this different, they, if you went 10 steps, it constituted work, and you're not to work. It says it in Exodus 20, verse 8, you can't work wrong, you're sinning, you know, and they put this unbearable burden on the people. But think about Jesus. It didn't matter if it was a Sabbath day or Friday or Sunday. He healed, he worked, he walked, he, he ate. It didn't matter to him. He's the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings, and it didn't matter to him. Very interesting, it angered the Jewish leadership. They were always getting down on him for that. In fact, here's a scripture in Luke. <clears throat> Here's a scripture in Luke. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on, notice, the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, this is the rabbi, you know, with a black flowing robe. There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on one of them, but not on the Sabbath day. I mean, how ridiculous is that? So, so what about the Ten Commandments? That's what I just read to you. So what about them? How are we to take them literally? I've been teaching that, right? I've been teaching that. So we come to this fourth commandment. You say, well, Pastor Lee, then we should take that, that literally. Do they require something special of us, the Ten Commandments? How are we to view the Sabbath in light of Exodus chapter 20? Well, there are ten laws, but only one law that isn't speaking to man's morality. There's only one, and it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath has nothing to do with moral law. The Sabbath was given specifically to Jews. It wasn't given to Gentiles. The Ten Commandments were given to who? Moses. To lead these people into this promised land, into a brand new relationship with God, specifically for that purpose. And so the other laws, all the other laws are moral. They're binding. In other words, just as God's people were forbidden to have idols before God, we are forbidden to have idols before God. That we uh, together were not to have uh, or to worship anything but the true and living God. We're not to worship anything more than that. We're, We're to worship God alone. We're never to take the Lord's name in vain. And that's to the Jew and to the Gentile, to anybody living in the past and anyone living in the 
future. No one is to take the Lord's name in vain. Do you get the idea here? These are moral laws. We're never to take the Lord's name in vain. We're to honor our father and mother always. That doesn't change. We're not to murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, or covet. All of those laws have to do, they're, they're moral laws. But if, but if they're permanent, then why isn't the Sabbath permanent? Okay, that's a, another question I wrote here. I think it's a good question. Genesis 2 tells us here that God blessed, he blessed as a memorial the seventh day. That's all he did. He blessed it. It's a memorial. It's a special day to remind you that he created and to line us up and lay our lives out for this, this cycle that we're in, the cycle of weeks. But there's no mention of Sabbath being a day of worship in Genesis 1 or 2. The next time that you run into the word, this, this word about the Sabbath here is in Exodus chapter 16. And by this time, hundreds of years have passed, and all of these patriarchs that we know, um, uh, all of these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and all the rest of the people around them during these hundreds of years, they've come and gone. But none of them worshipped on the Sabbath. None of them. Because Exodus 20 hadn't been written yet. God hadn't given the law to Moses. So what about them? If, it, if it's that important... In Genesis 2, then it should have been important for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? But it wasn't. It was never a moral law like murder, adultery, stealing, and lying. All it was was a sign, and it was a sign for the Jews. The Jews were the ones that were told, you're going to work six days. And we were just there a few weeks ago, remember on Sabbath? Public transportation stops at about 4.35 o'clock. It just stops. You know, you can hardly get a taxi. That's the night Esther and I walked down to the, the whaling wall together because there weren't any, ta- we were going to get a taxi on the way back, but there weren't any about 10 o'clock at night. They're just, they, they stop. And what do they do? Well, you know, Jews are like any other people. There's some that are serious about their faith and most of them aren't. So they party. This is, their, this is their day off, their night off. So they, they end work early and they go play and the bars fill up and the you know, theaters fill up and they, the people, they, they're resting. It's, they're just taking the night off and they have the next day off. It's their, their, their Sabbath. Very interesting when you get there and you see that. It's, it's, it's phenomenal the way everything kind of comes to an end or close or stop. But it was a sign for the Jew, this Sabbath, this rest for the Jew. So when Jesus came, and we're New Testament believers, when Jesus came, the Sabbath wasn't enforced. The Sabbath meant nothing because Jesus came and and he abolished all the Jewish rites and rituals. There was no reason for sacrifice after Jesus, right? There was no reason for temple worship or priests. Why? Because we had Jesus. He's the priest. There was no reason. All of that stuff was abolished. And that includes the Sabbath. That's why. That's why we don't have to uh, worship on the Sabbath. The Sabbath observance went away like all the other ceremonies and rituals, even the temple, all of it. Besides, we learn this by observing how Jesus lived during the Sabbath. Again, I mentioned it already, but in Mark chapter 2, Jesus was on a stroll with his disciples on the Sabbath, and they went through a field. And as they go through the field, they were hungry, and so they were pulling grain off. Remember, they were pulling grain off, and they're 
winnowing in their hands, and I'm just eating. Well, I don't know what it was, oats or rye or whatever it was. Just, just, as they're walking through the field, they're eating grain. And the Pharisees see it, and they stop and they say, hey, how come your guys are eating on the Sabbath? They're eating grain on the Sabbath. They're walking through the field and eating grain on the Sabbath. And remember what Jesus said? He tells them a story about David. He said, well, remember what David did? He, he went to the temple and he, he ate the showbread because he was hungry. And then Mark 2, 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You guys got it all wrong, you Pharisees. You, you have everything wrong in your mind. You've set that day apart and you worship the day. That's not the, the idea. You're supposed to just cease from work and rest. And, and we're just walking through the field. The idea was that God designed the Sabbath to be a blessing. It was a day of rest. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's greater than the Sabbath, and he proved that in his life. So we as Christians can look at Jesus, we can look at these other passages and determine that we're not bound to legalism. We're not bound to these things. But there are some strict, they're called Sabbatarians. Sabbatarians um, it, it, they're like Seventh-day Adventists. And my biggest issue with the Seventh-day Adventists is, you know, there's, we have brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the spectrum, but my biggest issue is that the, the Seventh-day Adventists believe in the writings of Ellen G. White, and they elevate them to the place of Scripture. Sounds like a problem, doesn't it? But many of them do. Not all of them, most of them, and, and certainly many of them in Loma Linda. I'm not putting them down other than when you put something up equal to scriptures, then I'm going to say I reject that. I reject all of that. Just like the magazine, the J-Dubs walk around on their, for, on their chest. It's a magazine. It's not the word of God. And so that's my biggest problem with them. Now, now Seventh-day Adventists have very strict dietary laws. And if you go to Loma Linda, the shops are closed. When? What day? Because it's their Sabbath. And they actually worship on that day. They're... They're in church. Their churches are happening. Very legalistic in their dietary laws. But they mainly are very faithful to this fourth command. And they'll quote Genesis and they'll quote Exodus 8, or Exodus 20, verse 8 as well. And there's also these other Sabbatarians that are Seventh-day Baptists. They're a really small group, and you may have heard about them. Um, I knew one, only one, that I had ever come in contact with it. He was real radical. White shirt, black tie, King James only. He was very, very interesting. Hymns, piano, no organ, no, no guitar. That's sacrilege. Very, very legalistic in a lot of different ways. But it's very interesting about the Seventh-day Baptists. They kind of shift the command in Exodus from Saturday to Sunday. So you kind of go figure. You know, it's like, well, why did you do that? But they did it, and that's what they do, and it's really strange. But they see themselves as Sabbatarians as well. So I, I hope that helps you and answers that question. This is the Sabbath day, or the Sabbath rest in Genesis 2, is just a day that God set aside. He blessed it and said, you know what? I'm going to back off. I'm going to enjoy creation. And that's the reason that he, he set that. And we have the cycle and the week and the whole thing. All those, I think, are valid uh, information for you and I. Now, beginning in verse 4, we get the details of man's creation. And, and I'm not going to go too much farther tonight, but notice verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. 
in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, this is interesting because this is more detail, right? This is more detail than we had when we were going through Genesis 1, and we got to day 6 and the crowning or the apex point of God's creation, which is the creation of man. You see it in chapter 1, verse 26. Look at it with me. Then God said, chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image. Remember, I made a big point about that. God had created the other days. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. Let there be, let there be, let there be. And then man, man's different. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Very different. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So you say, what's the difference between Genesis 1 and 2? Well, Genesis 1 says that man is created in God's image as part of this six days of creation. Genesis 2 gives us more detail, the dust. We'll look at that in a minute. Genesis 2 gives us uh, the location of man in the garden. It tells us what man was doing there and and we discover in Genesis 2 what he's not supposed to be doing. That's really important because Genesis 2 now is going to set us up for Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man. So we need to know this. This is important information for us. In verse 5, the history begins. Before there's any vegetation, chapter 2, verse 5, before there's vegetation on the planet, it says, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. And this is the point of review here, Genesis 2.5. begins where Genesis 1.1 begins. So you go back to Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And again, at that time, the, the planet is like a, it's a mix of water and earth, and, and just, but it's covered with water. It's just a kind of a blob, and the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the watery globe there in Genesis 1.1. And then on day two, the second day of creation, God does this separation. Remember we talked about how he separates water below and above. It's there in Genesis 1. But there's this this thick vapor of water now that's covering the earth. As the earth begins to form, God makes a slice, you know, in a sense. So you have the water below that's on the planet and then the water above in the atmosphere and kind of blows water out into the universe too. Remember we talked about how there's ice crystals found on different planets in our solar system, and and scientists are always glad that they, oh, we have water, so there must be life, and it's frozen ice. Where'd it come from? Well, I, I believe when God sliced there in day two that water blew out of the universe, and some of it ended up in little ice balls on these different planets. But very interesting, this thick blanket of water vapor, or the outer atmosphere, There's no need for a water cycle. There's no need for rain or evaporation and then clouds and rain. There's no need for that because God provided for all the plant life through this rich, rich 
uh, evaporation, condensation, heavy dew, major fog, uh, whatever you want to call it. The, pl the planet was engulfed with this moisture all around. And then in verse 7, we get more details about the creation of man. And God formed the man from the dust of the ground. When God created man, he made him out of the most basic elements, out of the same elements he made animals out of, just the chemistry of the planet, dust of the ground. So there's nothing special about man. But the special thing is that God organized all those elements into everything that we have all these systems that are intricate in our bodies, the human eye, hearing, the brain, its functions, and all the organs, it's, 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 it's remarkable. God took all the elements and he organized them all into a living being. And notice verse 7, this is how he did it. Look at this. And, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And that word breath in the Hebrew is raka. It's the same word for spirit in other places in the Bible. And so God created man, a living soul, by breathing. And again, this is an anthropomorphism. I always mispronounce that word. But God doesn't have a hand, but the Bible says his hand spans the universe. God doesn't have nostrils, you know, or a breath uh, in, in this case. But this is what God's doing. He's breathing. This is just an anthropomorphism of God putting into man life. That's what it means here. Puts his breath into him. And in my new King James, it renders, and man became a living soul, a living soul. And Scripture indicates that, that man is a living soul, and man has a living soul. Did you know that? There's two mentioned in Scriptures. And some people get an argument. Which is it? Do you have one or are you one? And I would say, well, they're both right, because that's what the Bible teaches you, you are a living soul, and you have a living soul in you. That's what the scriptures teach. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and I didn't get this one up on the screen behind me, says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may, listen, your whole spirit, soul, and body, Paul says, be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, man has made a trilogy in the image of God, body, soul, spirit, father, son, spirit, we're made like God. And when we read here that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, that's the reminder that man stands alone in all of God's creation. We're different than every other animal. Now, I went to that whole issue a couple of studies ago about how um, the conscience and self-consciousness of man. Animals have conscience, but they don't have self-consciousness. And we're different than the animal kingdom. And why? Because God breathed into us and made us like him. Well, we could go on and on. And I'm going to end early tonight because I have to study for Good Friday and Easter. <laughs> but I think you'll get the idea here that Genesis 2 is an extension of Genesis 1, kind of a replay a little bit, but with some more details. And as we go through the second portion of, of Genesis chapter 2, and we'll do that next Wednesday, we'll continue through, you'll get more detail. But God is setting you and I up. Number one, creation. Number two, where man is, what man is doing, and what he is not supposed to do. We're going to get all that here in 
in Genesis 2. So let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight for the word. I, I just thank you for these truths that come directly from your word. I thank you for the details, the, the small details of creation that we're reading. And Lord, I pray that, that each of us tonight would become worshipers. I, I believe that's why you've included the record here for us, the historical creation record, that we might be worshipers and in awe of a powerful and magnificent creator God. So Lord, I, I just step back in a sense and I, I marvel at what you've done. I, I think about the complexity and, and perfect human body that you've created from the dust of the ground. I, I think about the, the manifold plants and animals of the kingdom around us, the, the animal and plant kingdom. I, I just marvel, Lord, at your, that the variety. I thank you, Lord, for the word that declares it, that explains it all. And, and we thank you, Lord. I just thank you for putting me in such a beautiful world. How lovely, how beautiful. Lord, it really is beautiful if we take the time to stop and see. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to help us to wonder at your magnificent creation. And I pray, Lord, as we study through Genesis, that we would not only just gain information, but, but be challenged with even some belief that we hold or some things that we were taught in elementary and high school and college. So help us, Lord, to hold tightly to your word, Old and New Testament. Lord, help us to take it literally and verbally. In Jesus we pray, amen.